0: All right, welcome back. Our first question is We were listening to a 7 a.m. presentation at a Michigan camp meeting where it was said that the uh, problem with sin is both an illness and a legal problem. From a design laws uh, standpoint, is it possible there is anything legal? Uh, so when you, it depends on the, how you define the terms. God's law is involved, just like the laws of health. Laws of health are laws. Law of respiration, law of nutrition. Uh, There are laws that govern our our health and well-being. Just like there, you cannot have physical health while violating the laws of physical health, you cannot have spiritual health while violating the laws that God created our hearts and minds to operate upon. So if you mean law that way, then there is something legal involved. But usually when people use the word legal... They're actually not talking about the laws of how God's creation operates and is design. They're actually talking about human law systems, a judicial process, uh, external judgments that then inflict uh, arbitrary consequences upon. And I can tell you there's nothing like that in God's government. That's all human. It's all arbitrary, and it doesn't work that way. So, so no, it, it, sin... Um, is a deviation from the law of God, which are the protocols upon which He created life to operate, which emanate from His own character. When He built the universe to operate, He built it in perfection. Sin breaks that 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 design, results in pain, suffering, ultimately death, unless the Creator restores us back to harmony with the design, and that is putting the law back in us. That's the whole plan. So, I I, I when I hear the term legal, I almost always think of human legality and there is nothing legal going on there. And anyone who would like to argue that, uh, we, we, we can defeat that very, very quickly. He says, I know the controversy in heaven started with the law and will end with the law. That's right, it's God's, God's law and we've got some really beautiful quotes about that and contrasting his law in heaven. Remember in heaven, uh, if you value Ellen White's writing, she said in heaven, um, there was no spirit of legality the thought that there was a law came to the angels something completely unthought of, or almost unthought of. Okay, and, and why? How, how can you have a law in operation that people are expected to live by, but they have no knowledge of it? And I've given this analogy before, this example before, and remember Isaac Newton finally discovers discovers not not creates discovers the law of gravity. And he goes to tell all his friends, hey, I've just discovered the law of gravity. Maybe he has an equation to show them about how it works and so forth. I don't know. But imagine his friends going, huh, there's a law about that? I just thought that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, And you can see the angels, there's a law? Huh, that's just how things work. And that's how God's law was. And Satan's position is God's law simply made up rules that he enforces. Okay, uh, but anyway... And it says, uh, Satan has many thousands of years to deceive and confuse. Please discuss Amazing Grace, page 168. Uh, and uh, especially sentences, sorrow can, um, no sorrow can bear any comparison and the sentence about uh, the sword of justice. So I'll read uh, like two paragraphs here. It says, man has not, man has not been made a sin bearer and he, has, and he will never know the horror of the curse of sin which the Savior bore. No sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. Human nature can endure but a limited amount of test and trial. The finite can only endure the finite measure. The human nature succumbs. But the nature of Christ had a greater capacity for suffering. The agony which Christ endured broadens, deepens, and gives more extended conception of the character of sin and the character of the retribution which God will bring upon those Who continue to sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ to the repenting, believing sinner. The sword of justice was unsheathed, and the wrath of God against iniquity rested upon man's substitute, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. Now, what's the first question you ask when you read things like this? Yeah, this, is, this is so straightforward if you have the right law lens. But if you go to the scripture or any writings like this and you have the presupposition, God's law works like human law, a system of rules requiring the ruler to punish, then you read this and it just goes, oh yes, he's going to do this. And, but when you actually let scripture define itself and you understand the right law, then you actually understand what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 118, and he goes on to describe why the wrath comes because he says, five times they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They preferred to worship images made with their own hands. So, because they, they rejected the knowledge of God, the wrath of God is being revealed, and Paul says, three times what happens? Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 24, 26, and 28, God let them go. He let them go to reap what they chose, which is alienation from him. It would be the same as what happens if you had a child who had maybe drank some poison, breaking the laws of health, and you have a remedy that would cure them, but they refuse it. They insist they won't take it. Eventually, if you let them go, that would be wrathful. to let them go what they insist on having, and that's the wrath of God. And then the wrath of God fell on Christ, because Paul in Romans 4.25 uses the exact same Greek as he uses in Romans 1.24, 26, and 28, where he says God let them go. Christ was let go by God for our salvation. Almost all translations confuse it for you, though, because they don't use the same language in English that Paul used in Greek. They say things like he was delivered over or handed over, rather than God let him go. Or, Abandoned, it. But you then have Christ's own testimony on the cross. My God, my God, why are you torturing me? Why are you raining fire down from heaven? No, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? Let me go. That's God's wrath. So he experienced it. Now, why was it so much more suffering for him? It's very straightforward. It's how reality works. I want you to consider this. You, uh, right now, today, if you heard the news that Putin in, Germany, uh, in, in Russia died. How 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 stricken will your heart be? How how, how much will you cry tonight? How how tore up and, and how much will you suffer over that? I mean there might be some human compassion, well, that's sad. But will you go home grieving tonight? No, no. If you hear hear that your firstborn child was killed in a car wreck today, mm-hmm. will that feel different? Yes. Okay, what's what's the point I'm making here? The closer you are, the more intimate, the more love, the more the more connection you have with somebody, doesn't it cause more pain? to have that torn apart and lost? And who had the greatest intimacy with the Father and who experienced the greatest fracturing of that? Wasn't it Jesus on the cross? We cannot experience. And we never will because we don't have an infinite connection that goes back through eternity that was was broken at the cross. The agony and suffering there is beyond our capacity to fully appreciate. So that's, part of why he endured more than the rest of us. And then the sword of justice was unsheathed on this idea of retribution. I encourage you, when you read stuff like this, not only understand design law, go and read widely from the same author and see how she uses these terms. This is out of The Great Controversy, page 541. And I've done this before, but we'll take a minute to do this because this is very telling. God has given to man a declaration of his character and his methods of dealing with sin. What do you think that is? That he's the creator and his methods are love, truth, freedom. Okay. The Lord, and this is is what she quotes now out of Exodus 34, six and seven. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Why? If you think of design law, and you have a remedy that will cure all who take it, but some refuse it, you don't give them a clear pass. You can't. They're still in a terminal state. They're still going to die because they won't take the remedy. You can't clear that. That's reality. So, Continuing on. All the wicked he will destroy it, she, she, she quotes here um, from Psalms. The transgressors shall be destroyed together, and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. And then, and then her. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as a merciful, long-suffering, benevolent being. Retributive justice. And people will read that. They won't read on. Notice what comes next. The person who just wrote, retributive justice. If you understand retributive justice through human law, what you me understand is that God uses power to inflict. But notice the next words. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that his creatures of his hand shall love him because he's worthy of love. Can you get that by saying, I love you guys. I love you so much. I, I, I would even die for you. But if you won't love me back, I will torture and kill you. I really will. Because I love you that much. That doesn't make any sense at all. It can't be that what she said. Keep reading. She describes the process. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are are a transcript of the will and character of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he received from the Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts, love your enemies. But wait, retributive justice, love your enemies? What? What? Keep going. Describes the process. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. How can that be? Watch. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. He surrounds them with the tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and, and follows them with the offer of mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sins. Doesn't abhor them, abhors their sins. Like a father abhors the, the, the addiction, but loves the, the addicted son, okay? The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided under the penal legal view. Well, that's God in heaven. He's making a judgment. He's going to decide. That is not reality. Notice what this author says. Um, when When their destiny will be decided, will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Who fixed it there? Did God make a ruling from heaven and put it there? No. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with with those whom they despise and hate on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed with earthly and selfish interests? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, and rapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and the ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who lives on the throne. Could these whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join in their songs of praise could they endure the glory of god and the lamb no no years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven but they were never trained they never trained the mind to love purity they have never learned the language of heaven and now it is too late a life of rebellion against god has unfitted them for heaven its purity holiness and peace would be torture to them The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. What's his retributive justice? Simply letting him who is righteous be righteous still and let him who is wicked be wicked still. Letting each person receive what they have fully chosen and what they prefer. And these people prefer death than to live in the presence of God. That's So hope that answered your question online. That was uh, Great Controversy 641, I believe, or 541. Yeah, 541. Let's see. Um, in the ministry, so uh, if you remember, I quoted from our magazine on the Beast of Revelation, uh, and there's a quotation from Ministry Magazine in 1948, Leroy Froome, about how um, the 666 does not apply um, to uh, the Roman church and the, and the papal head. This person's commenting. Uh, In the Ministry Magazine, 1948, Leroy Froome wrote against the meaning of 666 of what Uriah Smith wrote in 1866. Uh, Uriah Smith in 1866 came up with this idea that it means Vicarious Fili Dei and the Pope and so forth. Leroy Froome had a Catholic and Jesuit connection, and his aim is to take away the B stamp from the Catholic Church. Now, I want to thank the person who set this in. This is a wonderful opportunity to expose one of Satan's methods to divert your mind from truth. Do you see it? So thank you for giving us this opportunity. Do you notice the argument here is not based on evidence, merit, and truth? It doesn't go to the scripture and say, here is the 666 and here how it connects directly to the beast of Revelation, the first beast of Revelation 13. If you actually look at the Revelation 13, the number 666, first and foremost, is not attributed to the first beast of Revelation. It's attributed to the beast with lamb-like horns. And if you believe the first beast of Revelation is the Roman church, first beast of Revelation 13, the one with the seven heads and ten horns, if you believe that's the Roman church, the number 666 in the scripture doesn't, is not attributed to that beast. It's attributed to the beast with the lamb-like horns. So in the context itself, this is a misapplication. It doesn't work but they don't also argue from the merits. They don't go to history and say, yes, the argument that Froom gave that there's never been a, 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 a three-tiered mitre that's ever been identified, found historically, archaeologically, or otherwise, that shows the Vicarious Feely Day has ever been put on that. He made that up and, and assigned it. It's, it's nowhere to be found in history. There isn't one mitre that all the popes wear. They all get a new one when they come in. So, so they, 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 notice they don't argue based on evidence. This argument is, a bit, is, is an accusation to undermine the... Con- so I'll give you the argument. If we, the same type of argument here is Leroy Froome had Catholic and Jesuit connections. Jesus Christ hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Did you ever hear that argument? <laughs> Therefore, you can't trust what Jesus Christ says because he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what this argument is. It's a diversion away from the actual evidence to have you devalue what the person wrote or said without actually ever looking at the evidence. It's a classic trap and trick. Don't fall for it. Curious about the image of Daniel 2 representing a man uh, and Revelation image uh, dragon. The man in Daniel 2, the the image with the multi-metal image of a man, in uh, Daniel 2 represents different powers throughout history. The man of sin will crumble when the stone smites its feet. Uh, doesn't the man in Daniel 2 represent Satan's Babylonian, uh, uh, Babylonian-like kingdoms? Yes, it does. Uh, all the kingdoms of the earth are Satan's. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's right. All the kingdoms of the earth use imperial law, made-up rules, coercive power, the ten horns that we identified in our magazine, uh, they use all those powers to coerce consciences and force obedience. So yes, that that metal thing uh, represents specific kingdoms through time to give a prophecy, but it could also be symbolically representing of the systems of the world that are destroyed when Christ comes uh, through the uh, rest of the kingdoms and the ten toes and the, and the clay and the metal that don't mix together. That's the kingdoms that are running the earth at the end of, of time, which the, the ten, the global complete kingdoms of the earth. So yes, that, that would be fair to say. Last year has been very bad for me physically. I've uh, had a, structure, a giant structural problem with my whole health. I have people tell me that God is in charge, that he's in control, that it's his will for me. I have a hard time with this. I don't believe this is uh, God's will for me. I don't believe uh, God's will is done in the, uh, on this planet. I believe we are at war. Um, uh, I'm a casualty. Your thoughts? Uh, you know, it, I can't answer that question. It depends, the, the circumstance. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. And he was a casualty of a war. He suffered loss of 10 children. He suffered physical health loss. He had boils. He, he had lost all his wealth. He suffered, and it was not because of anything he did wrong. The paralytic that Jesus saw at the well, at the, at the um, fountain there, they couldn't get uh, it hit according to Desire of Ages. His suffering was because of sin in his life. That he was conducting himself in some sinful way. And that's why Jesus said to him, first, your sins are forgiven. Same thing the one let low down through the roof. Same thing. I have no idea this person's personal life. It could be either way. It could be that you are completely perfect and righteous and you are under attack by the devil. There is no question about it. It also could be that we have done something in our lives that have brought something upon us. There's no way I can tell. I can tell you, though, that God is in control of what God controls. And God controls himself and he controls the laws that govern his universe. But he never controls our choices. Never. And sometimes the friends of God, like Stephen, like Paul, like the apostles, like Jeremiah, and many others, are put in circumstances where through their righteous choices, they stand in a position where they suffer, not for any wrong they've done, but to contrast what faithful loyalty to God looks like in the face of evil. So I can't answer your question. You're going to have to prayerfully reflect on that and come to your own conclusion. I know the Bible says not to fear, but I think that evil and all of the things that evil does, especially kidnappings and such and plenty of other things are so terrifying As the darkness in this world becomes more acceptable, I personally find it scary. How do I not fear all the darkness for myself and my sweet babies? You guys know the answer to this. Where do you focus? So when the darkness is rising, do you turn and spend your mental energy looking in the darkness? Or do you look to the light? What's the Bible say? We fix our eyes on the evil in the world. We fix our eyes on Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. The challenge is absolutely, and this is one of Satan's strategies, It is an absolute strategy to get you to take your eyes off of Christ and his promises for you and his presence in your life by focusing on the threats. And that's, and, and when he can focus on the threats, then it rises up fear, and fear does what to love. See, fear and love are inversely proportional, both emotionally but neurobiologically speaking. When your love circuits are active, they turn off the fear circuits of your brain. When your fear circuits rise up, though, it's harder to actually experience love and act in loving ways. Fear, the more fearful you get, the more you want to run, hide, and protect yourself. And so I encourage you that the more you are seeing some of these threats, that you double or triple your time in your personal meditations, focusing on the life of Christ and making him the center. Last week, you stated that there are research articles coming out that reveal that injections are related to getting COVID, that more injections are more likely to get COVID again. Is that correct? Can you give the resources? Um, yeah, I saw one article came out of, um, I think, uh, the, the, the Middle East over there um, that uh, showed that uh, I, but I'll have to hunt for that. I, I, I personally have gotten tired of this. <laughs> and, and so I, I've stopped, I, I have a huge file that I was keeping for about three, two and a half years of all these articles and I, and, and I've just gotten tired of keeping them. So I'll have to hunt for it. But yeah, there's one article that, that has shown that the more injections that people have gotten, the more vulnerable they are to being infected with COVID. Yeah, about Israel about that. An Israel study? Do you know the study, George? I'm not sure the exact study, but check out a resource called Frontline COVID Critical Care. They've been real consistent, Peter McCullough, and they do a lot, because there's even some stuff for detox that they're starting to talk about and all that, maybe even good news beyond the, going down no. to the uh, yep. obvious. Yeah, so uh, I can tell you, the, uh, <laughs> the immune system was seriously damaged for most people, and the more injections they got, the more it, it was damaged. And what, and what we said in here all along has proven to be true, natural immunity... Natural immunity and recovering uh, has been robust and sustaining people. So That doesn't mean you can't get infected with a new potential variant if it's variant enough. But you'll still have some, some crossover protection. And in fact, the data showed from the very beginning that people who had SARS-CoV-1, back from 2004, like 5, 6, whenever that was, had some protection against SARS-CoV-2 because they were similar enough that some of your antibodies were effective against the, the new one. So, yes. And one just brief follow up. They'll do a great job. you just do local measures, like for COVID, have been your nose three days. So, if you do just the nasal sprays and mouthwashes, you won't get hardly any of their viral illnesses thus far. So, it's a great. So, so if you didn't hear that, George is is affirming that this is a. A uh, respiratory virus that has to reproduce in your mucosal membranes of your sinuses for about three days before it actually crosses into your bloodstream. And if you get exposed, if you do various—and there's different types of nasal washes and sprays and mouth washes you can do during those three days, you pretty much knock it out, and it really never even takes hold and, and transmits into your body. Uh, for many people, they never really get symptomatic. So these are some simple things that can be done. And there's online resources. What was that resource again? So Frontline COVID Critical Care and then Peter McCullough, there are two of them. Frontline COVID Critical Care. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the way you have designed and run your kingdom, the truth that you've revealed to us, and the fact that you are working in all of our hearts and minds. We ask that you will give us the wisdom and discernment to know where you're leading, that we can choose to align ourselves with you and fulfill the purpose that you've called in each one of our lives to, to accomplish at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.